Welcome into another edition of Chelsea Mic'd Up. I'm Mike Ryan Ruiz. The neutral observer Chris Whittingham and I wanted to take this little mini offseason we're having and bring you some of the best interviews we've done during the last year of the pod. Last week, you heard from Christian Pulisic, Tammy Abraham, Billy Gilmore, and part of the champions of Chelsea women's side, Millie Bright. You can find that episode in the very same feed you are in right now. While you're there, subscribe, rate, review, unsubscribe, re-subscribe, unsubscribe, re-subscribe again. That's how we game the system here. And you know I just want to be top of the table, lads. I don't care if uh, there's a huge controversy swirling. Hell, Man City selling the Champions League. I can be the top-rated podcast by gaming the system. Go ahead and do your deed, even if it's dirty. Tell your Chelsea-loving friends about us. Many people don't even know about us yet, and it's crazy. We're the podcast that has Christian Pulisic on it. Go ahead and tell your Chelsea-supporting friends there is one place where you can get interviews from players on the reg, and that is Chelsea Mic'd Up. Do I hate myself for using the phrase on the reg as a 34-year-old father? You betcha. But that's some of the that you can find here on Chelsea Mic'd Up occasionally. I'm just natural at it. So get the word out. Hey, there's this slightly annoying guy, especially after Chelsea wins, that has a podcast and it's the official Chelsea podcast. Throw it in the WhatsApp group. Just go ahead and support us because we are grateful for the support and we want the CMU. What do I call Chelsea Mike Duff fans? That's maybe something that we can figure out in this offseason. Let me know at Michael Ryan Ruiz if you have any suggestions. Okay. This week, we got some really fun interviews with some Chelsea legends. Ashley Cole, our first ever guest on Chelsea Mic'd Up, and Petr Cech, a hero of mine and a great storyteller, plus the chairman of Chelsea FC, Bruce Buck. But we should start with Ashley Cole. Got the chance to meet Ashley at the Premier League Fan Fest. Remember when thousands of Premier League fans could be in one place? It happened down in Austin. Had an incredible time meeting him and talking to him on our first ever episode of Chelsea Mic'd Up. Of course, I had to bring up 2012 and a Champions League win that he was a massive part of. Remember, even that semifinal, the Fernando Torres goal, guess whose boot that pass left? That's right, AC3. But we also talked to him about his time at Derby, playing under Frank Lampard, which had to be a little surreal and maybe awkward, and his time now is part of the coaching setup at the football club. So let's go ahead and play for you our interview with Ashley Cole. The dynamic of you playing for Frank Lampard at Derby is fascinating to me. How does that come about? Does Frank reach out to you directly? Yeah, I was at the time, obviously, the MLS season finished. I think we didn't make the playoffs, so I think it finished in maybe end of October. Uh, I had to stay in LA for a bit, you know, and deciding whether I'll stay another year or, or come back. And, you know, I was missing my family, uh, two kids who my family, my girlfriend's family didn't see as much as we wanted them to. So, we, yes, we decided to come back and we were spending time and, and Christmas in Rome. And then I got a text saying uh, I had a few other clubs interested in, in me playing. And it was just kind of a matter of me deciding where to play. And then I got the, the text from Frank saying, you know, their left back wanted to go back on loan. Would I come and join him? And yeah, for me, it was the other clubs went out the window and I was, you know, that was my first choice now is, is to go back and, and help Frank. And like I said, we, we had a conversation and I weren't under any illusion that I was going to play week in, week out. You know, we had the understanding that if needed, I will play. Uh, but it's more about, you know, trying to help the younger, younger players there. And again, just trying to motivate them to, to push on for their playoffs. At any point, did you have any sort of pause, like playing for Frank Lampard? This is weird. This is a guy that was your teammate. No, we, we spoke about it before. And, and, you know, for me, I said, listen, I respect you. And again, I don't expect to play every game. Uh, and I want you to treat me as, you know, a player, not as, as a friend. And he was totally fine with that. And obviously he said to me as well, Ash, look, you're not going to play every game. So, you know, mutually we, we had an understanding that we knew what it was about. It was just me trying to help him and obviously, again, him giving me a chance to, to play again and, and, and fight for something special. So you mentioned uh, him treating you like a player. I'm sure that wasn't that difficult for him, but the adjustment of you treating him like a manager yeah. had to be bizarre considering all the moments that you shared on the field for Chelsea. It was. Even on the phone when I spoke to him uh, before I was I was joining up, I'm like, what do I call you, Frank? Lance? <laughs> and he's like, nah, nah, you call me Gaffer now. Uh, <laughs> And then my first day training session, I'm like, morning, morning lamps. And I'm like, oh. it was like a couple of times. They looked at me a little bit, you know, strangely. But yeah, after that, you know, I 
like I mentioned, I had a lot of respect for him and, you know, I wasn't doing it on purpose. It was just, I've called him Lamps for 12 years and then, you know, now I've got to call him Gaffer and that. So it was a little adjustment, but I found it easy in the end, yeah. It's got to be pretty exciting for you as a manager of the, the under-15s overseeing that entire project. It used to be a player that was on in the U-15s. Yeah, I, I dream of one day playing Chelsea, but I don't have really a, a connection point to that first team. Now there are players that are, you know, six, five years older than them yeah. actually making an impact on the first team. Do you see that sort of inspiration on your U15 side? Like, oh, this is something that's actually attainable for me. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, at, at times it's probably difficult because they are still young. Yes, we're saying in five years they could be in the first team, but they're still 14, 15 years of age. So it is trying to you know, tell them, you know, day in, day out that, look, the path is there and now I'm there to try guide them and, and, and tell them, look, this is what you need to be a top player. Not even a top player, but a player. You need work ethic, you need to work hard, you need to, you know, tactically understand. So it's just kind of basic fundamentals that we're trying to drive into them day in, day out, but now they can see the light and, you know, they've seen the young players who was in their position five years ago and now in the first team. So it's definitely, you know, we're bridging the gap now and obviously now I've come in to try, like I mentioned, help them and tell them, look, it's, you know, you're not far away. Yes, five years, but it don't take long. So these two years now for them, if they get pro contracts, is it's time to work and, and start to, you know, live that dream. Okay, you can't really speak to Ashley Cole uh, and, and ignore memory lane, right? We, there's many exciting things going, not only for you right now, but for your future with the club. But you've had some pretty iconic moments with Chelsea Football Club, and we have a lot of new listeners. It's a brand-new podcast. i got to relive some amazing memories with you. First of all, can you put it into perspective for those listening who will never be in any sort of pressure-filled situation, what it's like to step up to a PK, make that long walk by yourself in a Champions League final? Uh, if I'm honest, I, you know what, you can't, I can't tell anyone. It's, it's easy for me to say, yeah, just, you know, you casually walk up and you have a little bit of nerves. No, you, it feels like you've got, you know, the whole world and weight on your shoulders. Uh, you never want to let anyone down. Uh, we just fought in, in extra time, you know, and you see players, of course, people like Drogbo who worked his socks off to get us, you know, in that position with the header, with a goal, nearing the end of his kind of time at Chelsea. And, and for a lot of us, that was the case. So you don't want to be the one that lets down the club or, yeah. or kind of a player looks at him like, that was my only chance to win a Champions League and he's missed a penalty. So it is daunting and, and nerve-wracking and, you know, the feeling inside your belly makes you feel sick. But on the other hand, you know, you're like, you step up because you're confident and you want to help the club. And I've missed a few in my, in, in my time. So you do get a little bit anxious and nervous. But no, you, you just pick a side uh, and, and just go with it. And don't get me wrong, Neuer, he jumped up, <laughs> smashes the crossbar. And you're like, oh my God, the <laughs> bar is still shaking as I'm running up to take the penalty. <laughs> you know, he's big figure in the goal. It's, it was tough, but yeah, as soon as you see it hit the net, then that's just ecstasy. Yeah, brilliant. I'm just so fascinated with what happens to your body physically when you're in that moment. You make it, and obviously just the, the relief, but part of your body shaking. You mentioned the knot in your stomach. You get the cold sweats. This is something that you've obviously worked your entire life for. Is any of that stuff going through your head? Are you actively trying to push that stuff down and just concentrate on the task at hand and trying to clear your mind of it. It's got to be such a, a, a trip for your one's mind in that yeah, moment. Yeah, you, you definitely try to clear your head, but, you know, playing 90 minutes against a great team like Bayern, yeah. you're already tired, you, you're getting cramped then to go to extra time. Yeah. The cramp is kicking in even more, and then, you know, your shin pads come off while you're getting uh, ready to take the penalties. Uh, socks go down, shin pads off. Uh, are you trying to remember tendencies? What are his tendencies? Because I'm sure something that has to start going through your mind too. Yes, yeah, it's, it's you know it's, it's a difficult one because in a penalty shootout, you know everything can change. Uh, it is about mind games really, and I bet the goalies studied. Or I, I definitely know in terms of our goal because they studied you know penalties that went five years back. Uh, so there's a lot of work going into it as a goalkeeper. So you never know. And I want a penalty taker, so he probably didn't realise where I go too much. He kind of stood up for a long time, so maybe someone's told him I was going to dink it or something. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, it is, you know, 
your body's gone. You, you have no power left. But I think just the adrenaline just kicks in for that last couple of minutes. Uh, and obviously that last second to kick a ball. Because before that, I couldn't walk. I had cramp. Literally, my toes was... And this is no word of a lie. I had cramp in my toes from my boots. My two calves, I had cramp. My hamstrings, my quads, my groins. So it's just that one, you know, <laughs> just that last walk. You're like, I need to make that walk. And then obviously have the confidence to put it away. But no, it's... It's one of them you can't put it into perspective that, you know, where do you go or it's just that, that instinct, right? Look at the goalie. Is he going to go right? Is he going to go left? And, and just pray. <laughs> Even in that moment is the first thought once you see it go in is I have always wondered, is it just adulation? Yeah, I was there for my team or it's like, oh, thank God I didn't miss. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a bit of both. I, f- I think I took the fourth penalty, fourth penalty. So they just missed. So my one was a kind of important penalty, you know, in, in terms of where you are so yeah it was, it was a bit of a bit of both it was just yes i've scored it's not my fault <laughs> this is not is gonna be part selfish. of my legacy exactly uh but then like yes you know down to peter to save it and then you know jog was gonna score so it's one step closer when i took my one yeah that game is fascinating when you look at it in a vacuum because and we'll get into how you even got to the champions league final which is it's amazing that you guys lifted a european trophy and the game that i think most people remember from that season and that run is what happened at barcelona but you go through that fire drill at barcelona and you trail and in the 88th minute dda drogba equalizes from an impossible angle and just makes it look so easy but people forget He's he's to blame. Concedes a penalty that gets saved, and, and he gets to be the hero at the end. Did you guys have sort of a calming sensation? Because I'm very rarely confident when I watch any of my teams because I'm just a nervous mess. But as you're trailing in Munich against a side like Bayern, was there a sense of we've been through so much this season? We were down a man and we fought off Barcelona. This is our trophy. We're a team of destiny. We're not going to panic here. Yeah, I know it's it's probably silly to say when you talk about destiny, but I think obviously from nearly not qualifying through the group stage, and then obviously that you know the Napoli game where I was dropped and and Lamps was dropped to be three one down, and then now we've got the home tie. I'm back in the team. Frank's back in the team, and and you know it was just a feeling that right, you know, one I'm going to prove the manager wrong. Two, this is going to be a year we can you know from 3-1 down who would have thought we could have got that back so yes we, we, we come back and again our big players turned up for that game and then you know, further down the line we played Barcelona 10 men 2-0 down it's you know it's we've gone through so many tough situations and, and you know tough moments in, in in games we've played and then obviously yes you, you mentioned about Didier giving away a penalty and then still having uh, you know the willingness to run and, and get up above players and, and fight bullet that header in as soon as he scored, I, I run to the bench and I'm like, this is us. Yeah. We are going to win this. I just had that fit. I just, I had fire inside me and I just knew we was going to win this game now. So at Barcelona, you mentioned how tired you were when you stepped up to the penalty in the final against Bayern, but down 10 men against a team that passes the ball and makes you run as much as Barcelona did uh, back in 2012. What did you feel physically as you're chasing that ball around, down a man, trying to hold on for dear life, what it seems, and then just the absolute relief of sending that ball to Fernando Torres? It looks beautiful, and it looks like you meant to do it. Were you just trying to clear it? Yeah, obviously the first question, you know, about how tired our body was, is it was more mental. You know, you're constantly checking your shoulders because you got, obviously they like to have runners uh, in behind, so it's just... Literally after that game, I was drained mentally. I was, it was like a a brick has just hit me in the face. I was just mentally gone. And when you talk about that pass, obviously (laughs) we spoke already about it, but no, I I was going to say I meant it, but no, it was just. It was an absolute dime that you meant to drop. Yeah. (laughs) No, it was more about uh, just getting it as far as away as as, as I'll go as I could. You know, we was under the cosh for so long in that game. We had like nine players, 10 players in our own box at the time. And that was just about boot it away as far as I can and you know as I've kicked it away my head was down and as my head's rising up I'm like oh (laughs) like I'm looking at the linesman is he not offside what's what's going on here obviously they had the whole team in near enough in our box let alone in their half and yeah and it was uh it was a long run for for Torres to you know it was a great control took it into his path and then it's not easy to run from the halfway line with someone chasing you 
so for him, credit to him to, to make that fantastic finish. And then as soon as he took it around the goalie, I'm already looking to run up and celebrate. You know, I'm talking about <laughs> yeah. how drained and tired I, meant I was. To do that. I was sprinting up that pitch to celebrate. So, uh, no, like like I mentioned, you get, you get that little bit of adrenaline at time, and 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 that was yeah, that was me. That was oh, amazing, amazing feeling. What's the uh, if you can isolate and you have a obviously a super long career with so many great moments. Uh, if you could pinpoint just one one moment where you feel like. This is everything that I hope. This is my favorite moment in football. If it has to be one, yes, for sure. It's, it's got to be winning the Champions League. Yeah. Uh, Even bigger than signing your first big professional contract. The moment of just sheer satisfaction. Ashley Cole has not only arrived, but he conquered. Uh, yeah, I'll, pro- I'll probably say the Champions League. Uh, you know, I've got a few moments, obviously, in terms of when I won my, my first title with Chelsea because... You know, when I left Arsenal, I was always chasing, you know, the medals, trying to chase the Premier League title. And it took me, I think, four years to do it. Yeah. So that was definitely relief when I did, you know, finally win the league. And, and we actually won a double that year. But I think overall, it has, to, it has to be the Champions League because, you know, I've never won that trophy. Played in three finals, obviously, with, with the Munich one. To score the penalty, you know, to win in their backyard, everything that went with it, I would definitely have to say... Being the underdog has to be uh, winning the Champions League. Get the latest Chelsea news straight to your phone. Download the FitStand app, the official Chelsea app. That story of him going up to that penalty spot despite feeling cramps in every part of his body gives me chills every time. Speaking of penalty spot stories, Petrček tells an amazing one in this interview we're going to play for you now. He also relives 2012 from his perspective what it was like in that penalty shootout, what it was like saving Arjen Robin in extra time. And we talked to him about his remarkable comeback from that skull injury early in his Chelsea career. A goalkeeping hero of mine and part of the front office at the club, Petr Cech. Chris, I am beside myself right now because I guess one of the silver linings of this pandemic and us trying to rework our workflow here on Chelsea Mic'd Up is that we've turned to teleconference apps. And so instead of just having a disembodied voice on the phone, I am staring at a screen right now, and Petr Cech is looking right at me, and I am sweating through my t-shirt, Chris. <laughs> you are now serving as a technical performance advisor for the club. That sounds really complicated. I don't really know what that means. Can you tell me? Well, it sounds complicated, but uh, it's, not, uh, it's not that complicated because, uh, as it says, that I'm uh, responsible for the football uh, side of the, of the club, and uh, I'm a performance and I'm technical advisor, so basically I'm working with all the departments of football and Chelsea Football Club and try to, to see how the things work, how we could improve it. If there is anything, I can advise to the board or advise to anyone to implement and different ways of working. And obviously, as we all know, it includes um, first team, it includes the development squad uh, and players on loan. It includes um, the scouting and recru- recruitment and obviously the connection to the uh, to the academy. So we try to make sure that everything in uh, is football connected, you know, everything which is relates to football, the first team performance and everything. We try to make sure that everything's connected. And obviously I'm working with everybody, try to see if there are little things we can improve, if there are little things we could uh, we could change. And, and obviously then it's up to me to... Uh, to report it to the board, to report it to Marina. And obviously the club then needs to make the final decision which direction we go. But uh, but obviously my my uh, job is to to make sure that everything uh, works smoothly and then everybody is on the same um, page. How much of you were you thinking about life after football while you were still playing? And how much is what you're doing now in line with what you had envisioned for yourself? Well, I have to say that uh, I... I was thinking about my life after football since I had a head injury mm-hmm. because uh, you know, while I had a head injury, nobody really knew if I was uh, going to be able to come back. And, uh, and then there was a moment where I had to start thinking, what if the whole recovery process goes uh, well, but it will not be good enough? And sadly, we've seen the same uh, scenario with um, Ryan Mason, who who obviously started recovering and done amazingly well in the recovery, came back to training. And when the moment he felt fit and ready to come back, he was told that he can't continue for the, you know, for the health uh, 
reasons. So, you know, that could always be, uh, could have been the case. So I, at that moment, I had to prepare for for the future. So that was always in the back of my mind because that, that incident at Reading shows you that you just need one split second and the whole career can uh, take completely different directions. So ever since then, I was sort of thinking, okay, do I want to do the coaching badges early when I can? And I started doing them while I was still playing for the national team with the Czech FA. You know, we had the program where we started doing the, the coaching badges. And, and then I started obviously uh, looking through and I've been more and more interested in how the, the club uh, functions, how it operates, what can be done better, what can be, you know, you always get ideas because it's very different if you, if you are in the front office and then if you are in the dressing room because the two, the two worlds are kind of a completely different responsibility and, and you work different way. So having seen both things to, together, obviously, that, that gives you a complete picture because you know that certain, certain things uh, will have an impact on the players as well and, and which way. So you can, you can prepare things slightly different way and I think that's, the, that's a good advantage to, uh, to have. And so I, I've done it early and then, um, and then I put everything on the side. And then the moment, uh, fortunately for Chelsea, fortunately for myself and, and for Arsenal, the, the, the Europa League final went the wrong way. Then you know I took one week and, and started thinking about uh, about my future and and this was the this was the offer which uh, which I couldn't turn down and it was by far the best opportunity I had and that's why I I chose to come back. You mentioned the head injury and in preparing for this interview I, I'm remembering all these details now. There was a very legit fear that this was a a life threatening injury at the time. Also, an interesting detail that I had no recollection of was Kudicini gets knocked out in that very same game, which is crazy. And I imagine you have no reportedly have no recollection of the injury itself, but you remember the recovery time. Was it a very real discussion with your family, your teammates, your coaches? I may have to hang this up. This might be a career for me. Were you scared getting back out there? No, my only concern was the was the health, whether my my brain and whether my uh, my skull uh, recovers completely, that uh, I would be able to to play uh, the top professional football at the highest level, and that's that's there's obviously a difference. You can play to a certain level, but I was at the at the top of the uh, of that iceberg, and then you you want to come back, and you have to make sure that your body will be still able to do that, and and as we all know your body is controlled by the brain. So if my brain was not functional exactly as it needed, then would be the end of the journey. But unless you have a very obvious signs straight away after the surgery, you can't tell. So obviously I started the recovery process with all the bumps on the road and ups and downs, but it only had one thing in my mind, which was the comeback and waiting every day if I can make a step forward, so and I, and it, everything's been going really well, and I was I was lucky that I had a great care, and everybody looked after me, and I had a great support, and my body responded to every treatment so well that it allowed me to come back, and in the end, I could see that I have no motorical problems, that I could start, I started training, and I started doing things exactly as I was. And it was giving me confidence that I'll be fine. And as soon as the you know the surgeon said, uh, okay, uh, it needs at least 12 weeks for the for the bone to consolidate and heal, with obviously the Titanic uh, plates I have in my head as a support, it helped. And it's true that uh, you know I was advised to to wear the helmet because nobody could guarantee that if I if I get another hit that uh, that the bone wouldn't break again because it was literally smashed into pieces. So it's not, it's not like you have one crack which goes together, but when you have uh, your skull in pieces, then obviously there is a big risk that it might break again. So as soon as we, you know, we, I heard from the surgeon that, okay, you still run the risk playing top professional football, even with the helmet, because you might have a concussion, you might, you, you, you don't know. But it gave me um, at least the small... Uh, it was only the small chance that it would happen again playing with the helmet. So this that was the reason I wore it, and I was very happy to to have that opportunity. And 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 I was uh, as soon as I could come back, I I came back, and 
and it's true that my recovery was uh, expected much further, much longer than, than I've done. If you didn't already have immense respect for Petr Cech, him just casually mentioning that parts of his skull were smashed to pieces, and then he got back out there and was arguably, I'm even dropping the arguably, the best keeper in the world after that scary injury tells you a lot about this man. Let's talk about the iconic headgear. Now, you made that intimidating. You made that cool with your performance. But at first, did you feel a little like, this is kind of weird. This is goofy. This is not comfortable on my head. Uh, how do I look? Uh, do I look funny? Uh, how did that go for you when you were first trying to break that look in? You know, the first uh, the first helmet was actually different shape than than this one because it was covering completely everything, and it, it looked a bit, uh, bit funny. So, but I couldn't care less. For me, the main point was that I could train, and I and I was safe to train, and and I was safe to make uh, the steps forward in my recovery. And and I used to play ice hockey as a kid, so I used to I used to wear the helmet, you know, with, even with the with the grill in front of my face. So for me, it was not a problem. It's true that it feels bit uh, it felt bit strange when you play the first game, and you are the only player who wears uh, the headgear during the uh, during the game, and there was so much made uh, out of it as well. So that first games were a bit awkward uh, because everybody was there, you know, the the, the media and and the, and the photographs and everybody was taking pictures because it was something completely uh, different. And that's why it was a bit awkward. But it was only first two games before I get used to the fact that, okay, I'm the only one with the helmet and I can't care less because I was happy to be back on the pitch. As Mike mentioned, you go on to have a, an immensely successful career even after this. We wanted to take you uh, to 2012. I imagine it comes up in conversation a lot. A two-week period, you have this incredible save in the FA Cup final against Liverpool that Chelsea rated as as the best ever. And then, of course, in that Champions League final, uh, coming up with those penalty saves. Uh, what are the moments that stick out for you from, from that run, not just for you, but the side as well? It was a strange season. I have to say we... We've done uh, with Andre Villas-Boas. We've done very good preseason. Everything was going well, and and nothing really indicated that the season starts and everything will start going wrong way. Because you know we work very hard, we work very well, and the atmosphere in the in the training ground was very positive because we were thinking like, okay, this is this is going the right direction. And as soon as the the season started, suddenly things just stopped working. And, uh, you know, the worst thing is that if you do the great things at the training ground and you don't seem to find a way to, you know, transform it into the performance during the game, then it becomes a bit uh, complicated because, you know, if you are not training well or you don't believe what you do and then you go on the pitch and things are not happening, that is a, that is an easy reason and the logical reason why things are not working. But uh, when you work well, when you have a very a great quality training sessions and preparation and everything seems the right way, then you go on the pitch and everything goes wrong. Then, then it becomes a bit, uh, a bit complicated because you don't know where to start. You know, this is where, this is how do you, how do you change the training where the training has the parameters and the quality it has to have, but then how do you, what do, what do you do differently than it happens in a game? And then we just couldn't find a way. And, and we all know that, you know, when things are not going well, the confidence goes, uh, lower and and strange things start happening and and it was in the league we just couldn't get going in the league and and in this in the champions league we seemed to have found some something which was different and uh, a part of the game in um, in napoli where you know we lost 3-1 and and it didn't look good uh, you know in the champions league we we were you know we were finding ways slightly better especially after that return leg when we had a change of the manager, and then suddenly, uh, you know, we won the we won the Napoli game at home with a quite uh, entertaining matter, and it gave everybody a huge boost. But still, in the league, was one one yes, one no. One day was better, one one day the result was not good. But in the Champions League, everything clicked, and I have to say that in the previous years, you know, we had been playing so well and we were dominating the league, and then we were playing so well in the Champions League. And we were so unlucky at times that we reached the semifinals. We couldn't make the final hurdle. And then, you know, 2008 was an unlucky moment uh, for us again. So we had these disappointments where 
you just go and you think, you know what, we were playing so well and dominating the league and always um, had been unlucky in the, in the Champions League that it, I just believe that uh, everything will reverse. We were unlucky at times during the you know the league games and things were not happening and suddenly everything came uh, together in the in the Champions League. Obviously, the run helped us uh, with uh, Robbie Di Matteo. You know, the change of atmosphere and the change of fortunes a little bit gave us a good run in the FA Cup and and then towards the end of the season you know we we had confidence that the season will end up um, well especially when you kept progressing in the Champions League and and when we were to nil down and camp new with uh, down to 10 men i think nobody would put a, a penny on us to come through to the final and and we managed to do that so you know the confidence was there and then the FA Cup final helped us to prepare it was a great game a difficult game and then when you win the trophy you know it gives you another boost of confidence and then we were going to Munich we knew we had nothing to lose you've been so generous with your time and our time is unfortunately running out and I have so many questions I even have hockey questions but in our very first episode of Chelsea mic'd up Ashley Cole vividly described what his body felt like what his mental status was as he stepped up to take a penalty kick in the 2012 final me as a fan when Drogba equalized at 88 I was singing we're just a team of destiny this is ours but after that, it's a roller coaster of emotions. The penalties conceded. You're facing Robin uh, for essentially the title. You need to save this. Are you as nervous as the player opposite of you? Or are you calm, relaxed? What is going through your brain? What does your body feel like? Are you tense when someone steps up to that penalty spot? Well, you know, I, I, only talking about it, I have a goosebumps now because, <laughs> you know, the, the, the pressure is immense on everybody. Everybody says that um, the keeper can't save the penalty. It can be only badly executed. But it's not entirely true because when you stand there, you know that if you don't save one, you can't win. So the pressure is on you as well. Although you know, okay, they, they have a normally a better chance to score rather than you save it. But you know if you don't save it, you lose. So you need to at least to get one. And then, then you have the penalty in the extra time. This is basically win or lose moment. And in that moment, I knew that if I don't save it, that's probably it. So I have to say it was one of the most amazing feelings I had before the penalty happened because my concentration, you know, I was completely in a different place. And, uh, you know, sometimes when you watch the movies and, and everything stops and goes to slow-mo, this is exactly what happened. You know, I played so many games and, and occasionally you have that little moment when things feel like, you know, you're in the zone and the, the body just does whatever it wants in a good way or bad way. But this was like literally that moment lasted for so long and I was completely aware that this is that moment that if I get, you know, if I save it, we have a, we have a chance and everything stopped and completely disappeared. And I just saw a ball, a massive ball there sitting. I was thinking, <laughs> okay, I need to save that. And, and then I did, but you know, so that relief and the happiness is there. You go like, whew, okay, we are alive. But then you have another 15 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the hardest part. You know, it's not the last moment, you know, when you have the shootout and you save the last one and then it's done, you go like, oh, okay, that's done. But here, you know, nothing's done. There is still 15 minutes and, and it will not count if you don't save the next ball. So it's a hard roller coaster of emotion for everybody on that pitch. And I have to say, for the players, actually, that the fact that they are standing half a line before they take the penalty, it doesn't help. <laughs> you know, it's a, if you ask anyone how it feels to walk from half a line penalty those 45 yards or whatever it is to take the ball and then it feels like ages. So they probably have, for them, it feels even longer and they have so much time to think about. So you are tired, you are exhausted, you are under pressure because you know how much it, it's at stake. Yeah? And, and then probably you start walking and thinking, okay, I do my usual penalty, I shoot to the right. Yeah? But then you walk and every step you go like, oh, is it a good idea? Is it a bad idea? Is it a good idea? Should I shoot there and there? And the, the keeper is big and this guy and, is and, good. And, and, and Petter, with every step, they are inching closer to a six foot five check stopping machine wearing a helmet. <laughs> what is that ungodly thing? This person is going to steal my soul. And that is the thing of legend, sir.
and then then obviously you have to make sure that that they feel as uncomfortable as they as they can get which means that okay in your mind you put okay don't move too early don't give a clear and early solution because if you do that obviously they are wow. they have enough quality to do that so you need to make sure that you hold your nerves the same way they do if they do fair play they score they may majority of the times but you know it's it's hard and i have to say if you ask any of the of any of the players in a history who missed the penalty in the final if you ask them if they wanted to do what they did everybody says no because they were under so much pressure that the body just didn't react, react the same way and and you know the motion of your kick just becomes completely different so the ball goes uh, not where you you know where you intend to but it just goes somewhere and and this is what this is what happens. So it's the hardest moment probably you know for everybody, and this is why you see, no matter how big and great players are taking the penalty, there is always an element of this pressure who can who can completely change the distance. Again, chills. Such cool stories from Petter. Love talking to him and seeing his face pop up on the Zoom. A thrill of a lifetime. To close, some of you may not know the chairman of Chelsea Football Club is an American. New York born and bred, and he'll tell you so. Bruce Buck runs the club on a day-to-day basis. We talked to him during our visit to Stanford Bridge last December. It was in one of Chelsea's boardrooms. I was very, very intimidated by meeting Mr. Buck, but he turned out to be a great guest. We talked to him and how he became involved with the club, how much the club has changed since Roman Abramovich took over, and his role in Christian Pulisic coming to Chelsea. Here is chairman of Chelsea FC, Bruce Buck. This is a real special treat for listeners of Chelsea Mic'd Up. We're now joined by club chairman Bruce Buck, who you'll know immediately why this is cool for the American Chelsea supporter, because Bruce Buck, you are from Brooklyn. I'm not exactly from Brooklyn. I was born in Queens, but of course I have the Brooklyn accent, the New York accent. I grew up in New Jersey. Now, I don't tell too many people that. I try and keep that a secret. So I hope you two guys and uh, the nine people that listen to your podcast won't tell anyone else. Metrics are doing a little bit better than nine, but uh, we'll try to keep it uh, between us. You are, sir, you're living a dream. We've uh, certainly researched. I've heard you also speak on this when you were in Boston as a part of the final whistle on hate. This is an amazing job because you were a Chelsea supporter, season ticket holder since 1991, I believe. And now you find yourself as club chairman. For the listener, can you give a little bit of background on how this all came to be for you? Yeah, well, someone once described it as uh, lucky sperm. (laughs) Uh, But uh, basically, I'm a lawyer. And uh, for many years, I did uh, what lawyers normally do. And in 2003, uh, Mr. Roman Abramovich, who was a client of the firm I worked for, bought Chelsea Football Club. And uh, I didn't do the legal work, but uh, better yet, I took credit for it. (laughs) And I became uh, a director right away. And in February 2004, I became chairman. So it's been an interesting ride. In terms of how a football club is purchased, how how does that happen? And uh, because, I mean, I... Purchased... uh, Just like any other business is purchased. Mm -hmm. Uh, In this case, Mr. Abramovich had been at uh, the Champions League, I think, quarterfinal at uh, Old Trafford in the spring of 2003. And uh, he really enjoyed himself. And as one does, he came back and he spoke to his financial advisors and said, I think I might like to buy a football club in uh, England. And his advisors did what they did if they were buying, I don't know, a cement company. And they did an investigation and some background, and they came up with four clubs that might be appropriate. One was Chelsea, the other was Spurs, uh, the third was Manchester United, but they pointed out the fans would not be too happy about it, and the other was uh, Aston Villa, which was for sale, but of course it wasn't in London. And uh, he met with Chelsea, and uh, with his advisors, a deal was done in two or three days. July 1, 2003, probably changed English football forever. Let's discuss some of the ways that it changed English football forever. I imagine some of what we see now with Chelsea 15 years later was in the original plans, but when that takeover initially happened, what was the plan? What was the strategy on on what he wanted to do with it? Yeah, Mr. Abramovich uh, said three things to the board, that uh, he wanted to build success immediately, which meant significant investment in players then, 
and almost every year since. Uh, he said he wanted to build a dynasty, a dynasty for the long term, uh, and that meant uh, putting together one of the best academies and the best coaches, and uh, you're seeing that the fruition of that uh, this season. And the third was to, um, to do a lot for the community in the wider sense, uh, community service around the globe. And, uh, you know, all football clubs do it. I think we probably do a little more than most, but that was one of the things he wanted to do, so we do it. Backtracking just a little bit, specifically being put in place as chairman, that decision gets made how? How does a formal offer come about? How much did you have to take time and reflect on if this was something that you actually wanted to do? Well, about a nanosecond to decide whether (laughs) this was something I wanted to do. But at the time, I uh, worked for a big uh, New York law firm, Skadden Arps, and it wasn't the kind of thing that they normally wanted their partners to get involved in. So I did have to do a little bit of lobbying. But in terms of uh, the process, Mr. Abramovich asked me if I wanted to do that. And before the sentence was over, I said yes. (laughs) Um, I, I think a lot of our listeners wouldn't necessarily know. I think are familiar with the way that American sports organization works and general managers and coaches and owners. But how would you say, this might be too broad of a question, that a football club runs, what is your role in it? Well, I think my role is uh, several fold, and it's changed over the years because uh, over the 16 and a half years that I've been here, for two periods of time, uh, we didn't have a chief executive. And so I filled that role for an interim period. In the early years, I did a lot with respect to player transfers and uh, acquisitions. I don't do as much of that uh, these days. And now uh, I'm generally just trying to keep the business side and the football side working with with each other. And I'm also doing a lot um, on the external part of the club. You know, I'm the one that deals with UEFA fill a lot of roles at the Premier League, so I'm doing those kinds of things also. Well, certainly a busy time for that uh, around uh, the club, especially recently. You mentioned transfers. I know you're not necessarily dealing with that at the moment, but a lot of American listeners just sort of see a transfer reported and they also don't know the details that go behind that. How does does this work? Uh, You know, we have a scouting department just like the New York Yankees has a scouting department, and uh, they identify players of all different age groups that we start to follow. And of course, uh, different from the way all sports was 20 years ago, there's no such thing as finding a needle in a haystack. I mean, every single player that's playing anywhere in any sport is known to most professional clubs in that sport. So, uh, you know, over time, it's a matter of uh, identifying who your targets are and convincing the target that it's best for them that they come to you. And that means convincing uh, the player, the family, the agent. And that's what takes the time. What was the sales pitch then and what is it now? Then it was uh, we are creating something special. Now it is we have created something special. Also, uh, we view London as a big uh, selling point as it com- compared to lots of other cities in the UK. I, I won't mention specifics. <laughs> Uh, but I think London, you know, if you're Italian, if you're Brazilian, uh, coming to London is a real attraction. Yeah. Well, it's a glamour club. It is uh, a destination club. And I want to talk to you a little bit about um, being that Chelsea is now a global brand. It wasn't necessarily so much before you guys came aboard. London and English football, the dynamics are such that you're either born into it or maybe you only have like a, a club of a certain size, and if you want to yeah. become a Chelsea fan, you can't really expand the base here. So, how do you speak to like which this is sort of- different, I think, than in America? Oh, where totally. I think if, uh, as I did, if I born was born in the New York, uh, New York area, I'm a Yankee or a Mets fan. Yeah. And if I move to San Francisco, I may still have a fondness for the Yankees, but I may start supporting the Giants. Yeah. Whereas here, it's cradle to grave. And it's even before Cradle, it's who your father supported. Right, so there's no real way to expand the... uh, But there is a way to get more people interested in football. Right, 
which is why you're sort of focusing on some untapped markets, really. I, I think even Chelsea Mic'd Up is sort of a part of a broader strategy of sort of growing the Chelsea brand because while you're probably tapped here in the United Kingdom with some wiggle room, obviously, mm-hmm. you could always grow here, places like uh, India and the United States now, it's sort of like uh, the Old West. Like People are trying to sort of become America's club. Can you speak to that general overall strategy in growing the brand in the United States? I think it starts with the fact that just being Chelsea or from Chelsea has a world attraction, you know, Kings of the King's Road and all that. And I think everyone knows about, uh, you know, the hippies on the King's Road and it has a whole allure to it, which you don't get in lots of other places. And we build on that and the fact that we've been playing some great football and winning some very important trophies. But I think um, to just put a little bit in perspective, I would say 10, 12 years ago, when we were really getting into developing internationally, we looked at the U.S. and we looked at China as, in round terms, the two big areas. And um, we looked at China as, as an opportunity where they've got several billion people, but they don't have a lot of money. So you know, is that going to work out? And then we looked at America and we said, well, they've got a lot of money, but they're already, each man anyway, and a lot of women are already supporting, you know, sports teams in four different sports. So, you know, is that a good opportunity? And I think we were wrong on both scores that, you know, we, we found that um, Americans who we view as the biggest sports fans in the world do have room to add another sport to their repertoire. And the Chinese, who we thought didn't have any money, well, over the last 10 years, they've had, you know, they've made a lot of money. So those where we didn't quite sure where we were going 12 years ago, we now know that, you know, those areas are the center of the universe in terms of uh, expanding our our fan base. Uh, And by that, I don't mean to be negative about other areas. We have a great fan base in, uh, you know, in Indonesia. And we have a great fan base in Malaysia. So there are lots of places where we can go. And I think it's a matter for our marketing people to figure out where we go and what we do when we get there. Some of them are in the room with us, and uh, they very much feel the responsibility of that charge. They're curling under the table now that we're (laughs) looking at them. Um, I wanted to ask you, just sort of based off of your life experience, because you mentioned sort of Americans potentially having the bandwidth not only to find another team, but another team in another country. Even when I was growing up, I, I, I didn't really think that I'd ever really be this interested in sport from another country. It's happening over there. How can you have an, emo- an emotional attachment to it? How surprised are you having grown up in the States and moved here that now in America, a league from another country is so popular? Well, of course, I'm a lot older than you. And when <laughs> I was when I was in high school, I, I'm not sure I'd even heard the word soccer. Yeah. I mean, so uh, the world has come a long way. But keep in mind, the world has gotten so much smaller over the last, you know, Internet years that it's just very easy to move things in one part of the world to other parts of the world. So that part doesn't uh, surprise me at all. Being that um, you just said yourself growing up. You didn't even hear the word soccer, so you're more than familiar. Well, no, that's a slight no, lie because no, I, I did know about Pele and, yeah. uh, and no, I the know New York being, Cosmos, but yeah, in round terms. You, you were speaking in uh, hyperbole, but you're very familiar with the growth of the game in the United States. And being a longtime American Chelsea supporter, it's got to be a real thrill to see an American like Christian sort of he dealt with the adversity in the earlier part of the year and i think the adversity and we can get into sort of the media coverage in a second but uh, to become a regular part of the starting 11 to perform the way that he has up until this point it's got to make just you incredibly proud to be an american <laughs> well a little bit <laughs> well, I, I know it sounds cheesy but even manchester united supporters because i think uh people involved in european football generally look down at the MLS, and at American soccer players. And uh, although we've had, uh, you know, a few here like uh, Dempsey and others, Christian looks like he could be a really, really big star for many years here. And I hope he is, and I expect that he will be, uh, all the way from... uh, Hershey, Pennsylvania, to the King's Road. I know that uh, there's a group of people here that handle that at the club, but was there any part of you that maybe was shooting a text over when those negotiations were happening? Come on, get that actually, one done! Actually, um, <laughs> Christian uh, visited here 
and uh, we have a relationship with uh, a charitable endeavor in New York called FC Harlem, which is a soccer club. And it just so happens that the head of FC Harlem, a guy named Irv Smalls, who, by the way, wears a Rose Bowl ring, he won the Rose Bowl with uh, Penn State, he comes from Hershey, Pennsylvania. So when I knew Christian and his father were coming here, I said, Irv, fly over, maybe you can do a little bonding here. And he did. And we had a wonderful day together, uh, you know, talking about the MLS and talking about Dortmund and talking about, uh, you know, things happening in America. So uh, I did get a a whole day with uh, Christian before we did the deal, and it was a lot of fun. When you sort of look back on the years you've had here at Chelsea or when you're at a dinner party telling stories, like what, what are the most positive memories that come to mind about your time here at this club? Well, the, the single most positive memory was, uh, was uh, winning the Champions League in 2012 in Munich. And uh, now that we've drawn Munich in uh, the next round of the Champions League, uh, it should be a very interesting February, March. Can you tell us the story of that day from your point of view? Well, a couple of memories stick out. First of all, for the two or three days that we were there, since this was their community, we felt like we were there to make up the numbers. <laughs> and, you know, that the match was all over and, uh, you know, we could just get 11 Chelsea players on the pitch. Then at uh, halftime, behind the director's box, they had the trophy. And at halftime, they started putting the red ribbons on the trophy, wow. getting it ready for the end of the match. And that was a little depressing. And then um, then they scored, and uh, I think it was about the 80th minute or something like that. Uh, Drogba? No, oh, yeah. the, the, was, the Drogba scored, uh, yeah, it was about 70th minute or so when they scored, yeah. wasn't it? And Drogba scored 88. 88th, yeah. Equalizer. And, um, uh, and then when it went into overtime, well, I was thinking the Germans never yeah. miss penalties. <laughs> and then after the match... Uh, I went into the dressing room, and uh, I was talking to Frank Lampard, and I said, Frank, I feel a little guilty here because when they scored that first goal, I I just gave up. (laughs) And uh, he said, well, I don't think all of us are feeling very good, but luckily Didier didn't give up. (laughs) And uh, And then I said, and when we got the penalties, I just really gave up because Germans don't miss penalties. And he said, well, once again, Didier didn't give up because Didier yeah. did the last penalty. So it was a great day. That's club chairman Bruce Buck. Can't thank you enough for taking the time out to join us here on Chelsea Mic'd Up. We hope you enjoyed yourself. It's a really I remember, cool I don't come from New Jersey. <laughs> we will make sure to put that in the bio for the episode. Thank you so much for your time, sir. Right on. Thanks again to Bruce Buck, Petr Cech, and Ashley Cole for joining us on this season of Chelsea Mic'd Up. Thanks to the club the mighty CFC, for helping us put together some amazing interviews. We hope to bring you some more great stuff like that in the coming year. Once again, subscribe, rate, review, throw it in the WhatsApp group chat. Come on, follow this podcast on your platform of choice wherever you get it, and we'll be back next week with a preview to the new season. My God, it's already here. I need to get cracking on stuff. Until then, up the chills. 